Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. Today, James continues discussing the sacrament of baptism, pedo-baptism in particular, and the sacraments generally. You can find more information about our ministry by visiting us at seaoffire.org, or you can view James's latest videos on YouTube at Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope this message serves to strengthen and build up the church. Our Father and our God, as we consider, again, the last part of this series regarding baptism, I ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that comes from you. Let us seek and let us find your testimony and doctrine that you've applied to all the sacraments. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so as we already talked about, the, the Latin word sacramentum comes from the Greek word mysterion. So we're going to consider one verse that I think might be seen in light of sacraments. Um, we'll, we'll talk about, um, remember we talked about baptism being a seal for the believer. I'm just going to give you one little verse from that. And then we'll, we'll talk about more applications of baptism in particular before we consider pedo-baptism or infant baptism fairly briefly okay so now the sacraments as instituted by the bible since they were instituted by the bible they have been sacrament you know particularly baptism and the lord's supper however the the concept of these sacraments kind of changed over time as we kind of discussed in our previous message now augustine said that the sacraments are basically the invisible grace so incorporeal not physical grace or i'm sorry they're the visible sign of an invisible grace so it's the visible or corporeal physical sign of invisible grace incidentally one thing about augustine one fascinating thing about augustine is both the roman catholic church and the protestant church call and refer to augustine as their father Typically in the Roman Catholic Church, they see because of his teaching of ecclesiology, so the, the function of the church and church offices and so forth. However, the Protestants call him their father because of his soteriological theology. So soteriology is basically the, the means of salvation. That's where we get the term monergism. So that's one means of salvation by God and God alone. And then there's synergism. Remember, we've talked about that where... It's both on account of God and the believer. And the believer accepts the gift of salvation as well. So it's a synergistic soteriology. However, anyway, I just wanted to mention, it's kind of fascinating, that Augustine is one of the very few church fathers that is both seen from the, with, within the context of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Okay, now, as far as the mystery, one of the... One of the verses one of the passages in scripture is mark chapter 4 verses 10 through 12 so this is this is christ okay but when he was right after he talked gave the parable of the sower remember the sower goes out and he you know throws his seed some falls on unhallowed ground unfettered ground you know hard ground totally apart from the field and so forth and then some fall on good ground so just after this parable, he says, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, 
all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive. Remember, this comes from Isaiah. And hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now, the sacraments must be given by the preaching of the word itself as well. So the teaching and the showing of these sacraments as well as the sacrament themselves. So the sacrament is seen. You know, all these sacraments are seen. It's a physical manifestation of an invisible grace. Okay. However, it's also supposed to be preached. So it's both supposed to be heard and seen by the congregation, by the, by the believers. Now, those who do not believe still do not have eyes to see and ears to hear. So they don't see the sacraments for what they are, so to speak. Okay, so that's just one. But you can look up mystery throughout the Bible. But again, I mean, th this, is, this might be far-fetched in applying this to the sacrament, but I see it somewhat applicable insofar as it, it is a holy, a holy mystery. Sacraments are holy mysteries. However, within the context of what uh, Jesus Christ is saying is, we are all given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So all, all the sacramentum, all the sacred oaths by God. Essentially, all of the sacraments are based on the promises of God. So our baptism is an acceptance and it's a and it's a it's a walking in the new belief after generation based on his promises remember jesus christ says go into all the world and preach the gospel and those who believe and are baptized will be saved those who do not believe will be condemned so that's based on the promise of christ so the baptism is by the promise of christ those who believe and are baptized will be saved okay now, even the Lord's Supper, remember when he was given the covenant that was based on his promise. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. So we do it based on his promises. It's a physical sign of an invisible grace promised by God. Okay. So the seal, remember we talked about baptism being a seal. All these sacraments are seals according to the promises essentially of God himself. Now the one I wanted to use was out of the Song of Songs just because some of us are less familiar with it. So this is in chapter 8 verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Now a most vehement flame is literally a flame of Yahweh, a flame of Yah. Okay, so this is the beloved, this is basically the betrothed, the wife of the, the husband, okay, and they, they have this beautiful back and forth, and sometimes she's talking to the daughters, so to speak, but she's saying this to the beloved, to her beloved, set, set me as a seal upon your heart. This is what we should pray when we are performing any of these sacraments. Set me as a seal upon your heart. This is to seal us in your covenant according to the sacrament given. However, set me as a seal upon your heart, my God. A seal upon your arm and so forth. So the seal is a seal for believers, but also knowing and seeking ourselves being sealed by the promises of God, but by God alone. In Revelation, it also talks about being sealed. You know, when, when all the locusts are released, there's this time, 
it's reflective of the Exodus account, okay? But, but basically, they, they, they're given power to destroy everything, basically, except for those who are sealed with, their, with the name of God on their foreheads. Now, whether or not this is going to be a visible seal is unknown. I suppose it's not. I suppose that there will be an, an ability from these God-given locusts to differentiate and to distinguish between believer and non-believer. So all believers, all true believers, all the true wheat of the invisible church are sealed by the name of God. Remember, the name of God, the name of Christ, is basically the being, the power of God and of Christ. So we are sealed by the name of God. All of us, all believers. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. So within the sacraments, we have this mystery, Okay, we have this mysterious union being given over for us. Now, I do want to say also, because some, basically, there are two extremes on either side of the sacrament. Seeing all the power within the sacrament themselves, which is what we considered, and seeing no power at all, and no, no sign, no, no significance. Okay, it, does, it is a sign. But you see, and I've seen, in not, and I've lamented this, in non-denominational churches and some churches in general, for the Lord's Supper, they give you this little thing of grape juice and this little cracker. Grape juice. The Lord's Supper is with wine. It's not unfermented grapes. It is fermented grapes. And I think, so that extreme is considering the sacraments as just a byproduct, something basically we're commanded to do and we should enjoy doing, but how we do it is irrelevant. And who does it is irrelevant. The sacraments throughout church history are given by ordained ministers and ordained ministers alone. Now, briefly, I do want to say that the, the father, the head of the household, so even if the father dies, then I think the mother can do this as well, but I think it's, I find it fine within the confines of the family for the man, the head of the household, to lead their family in communion as well. You see in Acts, you see throughout the New Testament, everybody's breaking bread all over the place. And breaking bread is the Lord's Supper, okay? So, however, it is meant to, especially baptism, well, baptism and the Lord's Supper is meant to be given by an ordained minister in the assembly of the church. Okay. Now, even in the Old Testament, there were many different washings or purification rites, and we we're going to consider one, but there were many for different reasons, for different reasons, but especially to offer any sacrifices, you would have to be washed. And so in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze. It's just a container. It's basically a basin, okay? Of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offer uh, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord they shall wash with water lest they die so they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die and it shall be a statute forever to them to him and his descendants throughout their generation so in essence the priests would have to be baptized before they give a burnt offering 
definitely before they go into the tabernacle or the temple, as it were, depending on what when this occurs. But obviously, this is still during the Exodus, so it's the tabernacle at this point. But there was a basin just in front of the temple as well. You had to wash before you gave any offering or before you walked into the temple. So you had to be baptized. You had to be purified. This is one of the signs of baptism. It's a washing. Okay, It's a cleansing from sin from the believer. It's from the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay. And also, as we, as we mentioned, it's also a dying with Christ and a being raised with Christ. And the third, and again, these are just three, but it's also a testimony to other men or other people. You know, when you're baptized again, which you were testifying to the people based on God's promises, I am God's. I am God's. This is the testimony of his promises, of his sacred oath given over to me, and now I am his. So it's a testimony also to non-believers and to believers as well to say, to signify that you agree with this and you are your life is according to this now okay in Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 and 25 then Jesus said to his disciples if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So again, this is the baptism that's to signify our death with him. Whoever seeks to save his life in this world will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So baptism is also signified in that. We, we lose our life, our sinful nature, we lose that. We bury it in the ground with Jesus Christ. We impute our sins to him on the cross. We bury them and we are raised up in his righteousness. We, we are imputed the righteousness of Christ. Also, baptism is Trinitarian. You can find this in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. But the one Christ commands them with the Great Commission to go out into the ends of the earth you know, first in Judea, or first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism in particular is actually a Trinitarian sacrament. The Lord's Supper is as well, but I mean, there's much more of an emphasis, obviously, on Christ, because it's the, because it is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's substantially not <laughs> the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but again, God willing, we will wait to discuss that next week, how, uh, um, God willing. However, it is a Trinitarian sacrament. The baptism, baptism is a Trinitarian uh, sacrament, again, to signify that God the Father sent and gave His Son. His Son poured out His blood for us to, for the remission of sins, to wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and the Holy Spirit has come to live in believers. So that's why baptism is Trinitarian. I mean, basically, essentially, all the sacraments are Trinitarian. However, there's much more emphasis with Christ, with the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, just because it's so obvious. But we'll, we'll again, explore that next week. However, it's essential to recognize baptism is a Trinitarian sacrament. Now, baptism is essential for obedience, as we, as we considered last week, right? We, we get baptized if for no other reason than because Christ commanded it, okay? However, it's not essential for salvation. Think about the thief on the cross, 
He obviously wasn't baptized. He also didn't accrue sufficient merit. But Christ promised, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, yeah, you might need 5,000 years in purgatory first, so I'll see you. I'll catch you on the flip side. He says, today, with, today you will be with me in paradise. He was not baptized. He was not baptized. He didn't take of the Lord's Supper one time. Okay, so these are sacraments meant for his people to be seen and heard and understood by his spirit. Okay, now Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 uh, through uh, 28. Now we've, we briefly discussed this, so I, I want to kind of get into more detail, but this is when the sons of Zebedee, while well, their mother is asking Christ to allow one to sit at his right hand and one on his left. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him uh, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Remember, the, the cup was his suffering. The baptism is his death. It's him pouring, his pouring out his blood for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, for the cleansing and the purification from sins, from all un, un, uncleanliness, from all, all ungodliness. Okay? So, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able, he's asking the, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the two, two of his closest apostles. Remember, they're basically two of the inner three. Peter, James, and John. He took them everywhere he went. Even when he raised people from the dead, they were there. I mean, everybody was there with Lazarus, but with that little girl and other occasions, he takes just those three, Peter, James, and John. So these two are kind of close with Jesus. But he asks, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to baptize, be baptized with the same baptism I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. They didn't understand. I hope you've seen that tendency throughout the Gospels. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. I see in this both the Lord's Supper and baptism. You will indeed drink of my cup. When he gives the institution, the covenant, the, the new covenant, through the institution of the Lord's Supper, it is his cup of his blood, which is poured out for us, and the baptism of his death and of his resurrection. So he says, indeed, you will drink of my cup, and you will be baptized with the same baptism I am baptized with. Some interpret this as seeing martyrdom because James is the first one martyred. He's the first apostle martyred. But John lives to be almost 90 years old on the island of Patmos. It doesn't, doesn't seem like he was martyred. He was in prison when he wrote the book of Revelation. So I don't. Th it seems to me that this is a clear indication of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who were great exercised authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but, for, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, 
just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know we've considered this passage, but in light of the sacraments, I just, you know, I think this is a good opportunity for us to recognize that many of the differences with the secondary doctrines, many of the differences between denominations or different kinds of churches is, is a legitimate one. It's, a, it's an intramural debate between brothers and sisters. And both, one of the great things about the controversies, which I think I mentioned last week, I don't know, but one of the, ter- you know, one of the unfortunate things is that there is a disunion. However, one of the fortunate things is the reason for this disunion is because either party is trying to be faithful to God and to Scripture. Okay, so that's wonderful. These are, these are intramural debates, okay? So we must be servants in light of this. Humble, humble, not, not presume that we know everything and that everything, you know, we think distinguishes us from the next church and they're condemned. Again, apart from the, the, the justification by faith alone, in our previous message, that is not a debatable issue. The merit of Christ, being justified by the merit of Christ and Christ alone, is not debatable. That is the article by which this church stands or falls, and it's an eternal paradigm, and it's an eternal problem that either leads you to glory or leads you to damnation. So that is not an intermural debate. That debate has been over and has been solidified by Christ's merit, by Christ's righteousness. We will never have sufficient merit outside of his righteousness. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. This is what I was alluding to when I said Christ came to bring division. He came to bring peace, but this is what he says regarding bringing division. I came to send fire on the earth. Now remember, Jesus Christ baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. Okay. And how I wish you were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now, for from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The only thing I really wanted to say about this is, again, he, he came to bring peace for his people. He came to bring peace for his people. But those who are not given eyes to see and ears to hear are divided and will remain divided. Within themselves and certainly with other believers. Okay, and that's what Christ is saying. His name, his truth brings division. He is either because of regeneration accepted and believed on through his own merit, or he is rejected. He's always been despised and rejected by men. For those who want their own way will remain in their own way, and they will be divided between those who walk along the only way, the true way, the way, the truth, and the life. But he came to bring fire, a refining fire for his people. That's why I kind of got into the analogy of the fire. It, it, It can kill, but it can also save. So he came to bring a fire, a refining fire for his people, a destructive fire.
for those who are condemned. Now, I'm not going to read these, but remember in Acts, at the end of uh, Peter's sermon, he, he uh, compels the men to believe and be baptized, and you and all your household will be saved. Okay? And then when Paul, remember when Paul is saved on the road to Damascus, but then he's blinded for a while, and then Ananias lays his hands on him and prays, and all of a sudden scales fall. And at that point, remember, he hadn't eaten for three days. He hadn't eaten or drinking any water. You know, he's starving, and scales fall from his eyes. And But Ananias says, you know, what prevents you basically from being baptized now? Don't wait any longer. Go and get baptized now. And he's baptized before he eats. I just find that fitting because the, it was an immediate obedience okay we are called to immediate obedience to the extent that we can control it anyway also i mean there was the eunuch remember the eunuch who was who was traveling and philip overtook him you know and he's reading a portion of isaiah and philip asks him do you understand what you're reading and he says how can i how can i unless somebody interprets it to me and then they have that wonderful dialogue and then the eunuch says here's some water what can what prevents me from getting baptized and philip says as long as you believe with your heart that jesus christ is lord you know then you can and he says i do believe so this is the belief of the this is the belief of, this is the faith of the believer with our whole hearts with all of our hearts not part of our hearts it cannot be just part of our hearts now our merit you know and our righteousness is partial we are being sanctified that's a part of salvation however all of our hearts must be devoted to loving our Savior. Loving God, we are commanded, graciously commanded, to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, and with all of our souls. So if we believe with all of our hearts, remember, you can't get to the heart except through the mind, but the heart fills the mind with many things. So if you believe in Christ with all of your heart, then that will go to the mind and will also penetrate your soul. So if you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. Again, that's regeneration. Regeneration precedes baptism. It is not the means of, of regeneration. Baptism is not the means of regeneration. Regeneration precedes baptism. Because again, he even said to the eunuch, if you believe, which was before he was baptized, and we'll get into that in Romans 4. So Paul rebuking the Corinthians... So chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, which should be the cry of all of his belie all believers, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, from tho by those who are of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any wish to say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptize any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So, there was a division already 
in the I mean, we've already considered the first epistle to the Corinthians from Paul. So there were many divisions, but one of these divisions was based on the authority of the one who was baptizing. Now, remember, Jesus Christ himself was baptized to identify with his people. He must fulfill all righteousness, and according to the law given to John the Baptist, that had to, one of the new laws now, as a purification rite for the remission of sins, to identify with his people, he also was baptized. But it, the Gospels also make clear that he baptized no one. So this kind of has a two-pronged situation, right? If Jesus was never baptized, we would be less inclined to find it absolutely necessary. You know, like, how are we commanded to do that which the one who commanded it didn't do, right? On the other hand, if he had baptized people, then we would find all other baptisms inadequate. You know, if you, even if we were baptized by Paul himself, the great apostle Paul himself, or Cephas, Peter, or whomever, you know, if one was baptized by Jesus Christ, then we would find their baptism superior. Okay, so I think by the grace of God, he, he calls it to where Christ, because of his obedience, was baptized. However, he did not baptize anybody else for our sanctification, for our wisdom in that respect. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Remember, baptism is a sacrament of the heart. And remember, we considered the comparisons between circumcision and baptism, which we'll do a little bit again. Uh, but however, so in light of the baptism and circumcision being similar in that regard, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise, your, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Remember, we even read that passion, uh, portion of Deuteronomy, which says, basically, circumcision is supposed to be that of the heart. It's a cleansing. It's to cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness into godliness. That's what the circumcision was, was meant to signify. It is the right for the covenant, just like the Lord's Supper, is the right of the new covenant. Of the old covenant, it was circumcision. But even Jeremiah is saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So again, baptism is a rite, is a sacrament of the heart. If we believe with all of our heart, then nothing prevents us from being baptized outside of doing it correctly. Okay, and doing it with an ordained minister within the confines of how Christ commanded it. He, he, this was an apostolic sacrament, basically. He commanded his apostles to go to the ends of the earth, preach the gospel, to baptize in the name of the Father. Those, again, those who believe and are baptized are saved. Okay, now, okay, now I want to spend a little time considering pedo-baptism, or pedo-baptism. It's P-A-E-D-O, and then baptism. Okay, you know how to spell baptism. Now, the, other, the, the, the opposing side of this is typically, more often than not, it's credo-baptism, which is, simply put, believer's baptism. Okay, now, for the history of the church, I mean, early on, it, it seems that infants were being baptized. Okay, now in Augustine's day, there was kind of an, they, they were still baptized. However, 
The believer's baptism would wait until just before you died, because penance was all already kind of being assumed at this time, and so you weren't you wanted to wait until you committed all your sins, get them out of your system just before you die, and then get baptized to cleanse yourself and so forth. However, infant baptism was a practice early on throughout the history of the church, really until the Reformation. And I think, I believe, this, there was an overcorrection. Again, the two main sacraments that, from which, or of which, the Protestants take issue is penance and the Lord's Supper. However, within their doctrine of baptism, baptism is a regenerative act. Okay, it truly is when, when a sinner, when an unbeliever becomes a believer, when they are truly saved and indwelt by Christ, infused in their, way, in, in their sight and in their doctrine, over and ours is imputed, but that is not through baptism. Okay, however, again, going back to infant baptism, historically, it, it was always done. It was always done. Now, that's not a, necessarily an argument for, okay? Now, when we consider baptism specifically, you know, a series of baptism, we'll get into this more, okay? So I just want to kind of introduce and give you some arguments for, because there are true opposite views that, that we must take, you know, we must consider, you know? One thing is, it's not expressly commanded. You know, we've talked about, we did talk about where they were saying, you and all your household be baptized. That some in the Greek do see that as infants, but it's not expressly commanded to baptize your infants. However, it's also not implicitly commanded not to. It's not forbidden. It's not forbidden at all in the scriptures. However, again, it's neither commanded specifically to infants, but neither is it forbidden. Okay. So now again, I did want just to reiterate the three different modes or ways in which to see baptism is the, the purification, being cleansed by the blood of Christ, the dying with Christ, the being raised with Christ, and also a testimony before men. Okay, just before we even get into this. Okay. Okay, so now, Mark, sweet, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, read, Then they brought little children to him, to Christ, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. So, one of the arguments for infant baptism comes from this. Jesus Christ says, let the little children come to me. Just so you know, the Greek is literally infants. It's the same word given when when the Luke in Matthew, well, when Luke is talking about the infancy of John the Baptist and obviously Christ, and Matthew is talking about the infancy of Christ. So these, these little children are, are, Jesus Christ commands, let the little children come to me. For of such is the kingdom of God. Surely I say to you, unless you enter the kingdom of God like one of these, 
you shall not in no way enter the kingdom of God. Now there's much there, basically. Through sanctification, right? When we first are given eyes to see and ears to hear, we know very little <laughs> about the doctrines of the church and specifically the testimony of Christ himself. So we come in as little children, new, we are reborn. We are reborn. So we enter into the kingdom of God that he has established through his righteousness, through his vestiture, investiture, he has established the kingdom. Now all who are his enter into this kingdom reborn as little children. So let the little children come to me. Okay, and we're going to consider these verses and then we'll, we'll kind of break them down more. Now the one I really want to focus more on is Romans chapter 4. And we're going to consider, the, we're, we're going to read the whole chapter and then I'm just going to kind of break it down a little bit as it applies to infant baptism. It might not be so obvious immediately. So, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was, account, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that word accounted is also imputation, imputed or credited or reckoned. Okay, he was reckoned or credited or imputed with righteousness. And that's from Genesis chapter 15, 6. Now to him who works, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So he who works, he who seeks to work out his salvation, if it is based on our works or our merit, it's not by grace, it's by debt, right? When you're a laborer, you know, you work and you are owed a certain wage. That's not by the grace and the mercy of, the, of your boss or whatever. That's, that's an exchange. You are owed. They, they, they owe you that debt. So it's a debt. It's not by grace. A gift is by grace or, or mercy or whatever, or just by the benevolence of the person giving you the gift. That's the difference between a gift and a debt. But it's not based on works. If his justification was based on works, he has something to boast about before men but not before God, not before God. We do not worship a, a works-based God. For if we did, none of us would have any hope. We worship a grace-based God, saved by his grace and his grace alone. Remember sola gratia. It's one of the solas as well. Okay. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted, or imputed, for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. This is Psalm 32, verses 1 through one and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So, this is from David as well. So, if Abraham isn't good enough, you know testimony then let's also see what our first king said and he says blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven forgiven not that they might do works of satisfaction and gain enough merit but that they are forgiven by the grace of by the grace of god not the debt of god and not the expectation that he must forgive 
He must forgive only through the righteousness of Christ. That's because he promised it. He never promised, once you have enough merit of your own, once you do enough works, so to speak, then you can enter into my presence. That is not his promise. Even as far back as Abraham, he believed God when he was promising his seed. And he was promising his seed. And, and Paul will get into that. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or the baptized, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. When he was promised this seed, the promised seed, through Isaac. Remember, he had Ishmael, and Ishmael was rejected, and he'll get into that too, so we'll wait for that. However, he believed, and his faith was accounted to him as, for righteousness, it was imputed for righteousness before the circumcision. Now, this was not just for him, which he will conclude with, so let's just continue. Continuing on in verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. This wasn't done through the law. This was done through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. It's basically the same thing as, same thing as he was saying with the wages of works. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, he was old, contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, so this is the promise, right? So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up before, because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, very briefly, all I want to say is, again, this was given to Abraham before the right of circumcision was even given. So while he was still uncircumcised, but it was also given for his seed. Now, all who were Christ, 
who all, who all who are of Christ, we established last week, are a, from of Abraham's seed because Christ is the promised seed. Okay. Now remember, Ishmael from Hagar was cast out. He was rejected. And remember, even Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau. I'm sorry, I was thinking about chapter 9, which, I, again, I would, I, would, I would encourage you to read. However, so Ishmael was not, the, was not through the promised seed. The promised seed was through Isaac. Okay, so Ishmael was rejected by God's providence, by God's compassion. Remember, he told Moses, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I know I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And then Paul talks about uh, Pharaoh. So he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion and whom he will help, he will harden. That's what Paul says. Okay. So it's according to God's mercy and God's mercy alone. Okay. Now, so again, for Esau, I mean, for Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated according to his promises. Okay. Now, it was not only given to Abraham but it was given to all who are Abraham's seed. And the circumcision happened on the eighth day. Infant baptism doesn't have to happen on the eighth day. We, you know, these things, are, these things have certain things in common, but they're not the exact same. Okay. However, the faith, the righteousness that had been given by faith, because of faith, because he hoped without hope, you know, he had no hope. He was 100 years old, and he's being promised that he's going to have a son with his 90-year-old wife who had been barren for 90 years. And despite that, though it was hopeless, he still had hope. And in faith, believed that because God, command, God promised it, that he was powerful enough and just and merciful and true to his promise that he can fulfill it. However, again, so this happened before, circum before even Abraham was circumcised. And then, you know, the, the, the circumcision for the infants. Again, when a man or a woman comes to faith, it is promised throughout Scripture, it is promised that not only you are saved, but all of your household. Now, now we have seen, I don't know, I mean, I've seen that not always take place you know one becomes wayward now again you know without without casting blame where where I, where I don't know the situation the mother and the father are commanded to raise up their children in the ways of the lord okay however all the household is saved i find it it would be disobedient. Now, this is where I've come, okay? So, you know, my two sons, when they were infants, well, we weren't saved with the first one, but with the second one, we didn't do this because I, I didn't know about this. I didn't think about it. The majority report is pedo-baptism. However, again, since the Reformation, and especially in America, it's been flatly, it's been largely rejected, okay? However, I... I'm of the opinion, anyway, that it's almost a disobedience to not baptize your infant. Because again, this is the sign of the covenant. This is the sign of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. That he promises, if you believe, you will be saved and your household. So how 
if it applies to those who are in the household, how do we spare even them this right? In other words, if they are truly promised to be part of the people of God, how are we justified to prevent them this right? Does that make sense? Now, there are many other arguments, but I think this is one of the strongest ones for infant, infant baptism. Not to save the infant. Not, not, not proclaiming that because we're believers, that this one's going to be a believer as well. And I, you know, I promise that you know, this one's going to reject the, the world, the flesh, and the devil like we ourselves have the capacity to do that even with ourselves. No, not that at all. But basically a promise. Because you promised this, then not only am I saved, but all of my household, all of my household, I am also going to baptize my child in your name, my, my infant, in your name, as part of the church. You promise that they, that he or she is part of your ecclesia, of your body, and so we will baptize. Give this first rite, which Protestants believe as well. This is the first rite. This is the first sacrament, following belief, following faith, okay? I think it's unjust. I find it to be unjust to prevent an infant, an infant from being baptized. Again, though, there, there are different arguments on either side of this debate, okay? However, as it reflects the testimony of the entirety of Scripture, I find it abundantly clear not only are we allowed to baptize our infants. I see something of a command in baptizing infants. Okay. Now, lastly. Oh, also, uh, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, it says, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my commandment, my covenant. So again, the covenant of baptism, as it applies to the believer and their household, I think this is a warning that should kind of apply to us as well. Okay, to Colossians. We're going to return to Colossians. We considered this last week, but verses, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which, you were al in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay. So again, we are circumcised with the circumcision not made by hands. This is the circumcision of the heart. This is what the circumcision of the old covenant was meant to symbolize through the testimony of Moses, Jeremiah, all the prophets were saying this. Same thing. Baptism the the sacrament of baptism is a sacrament of the heart. It is the right of the heart and of the mind and of the soul. But again, it starts with the heart. If your heart is truly given over to Christ and His righteousness and His imputation, then you are truly saved, and you are truly ready to be baptized, to perform the rite, to perform the ceremony, to perform the commandment that Christ commanded: go into all the earth and preach the gospel. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So, 
we are circumcised with circumcision made without hands. We are baptized into his death and raised by his justification because of his righteousness. Because, so that God, remember, can, be, can remain just and the justifier. He is the one who justifies. It is not our baptism that saves us. However, because, the, because he has saved us, we ought to seek we, also, we ought to desire to be baptized. And that way we can enjoy the Lord's Supper as well. So within the doctrine of the church, it's necessary that you're baptized before membership and before you can partake in the Lord's Supper, or communion, however you want to look at it. And God, we, will, we will get into much regarding the Lord's Supper next week. However... This is done by the grace and the mercy of God himself. So, the, the visible sign of the invisible grace, the visible sign for our eyes, are the sacraments. The invisible grace is that which we don't see, but is applicable in the sacrament. Not in and of the sacrament itself, but in the one who who commanded the sacraments. That's partly why the Protestants see only baptism and the Lord's Supper as the sacraments. Does that make sense now? Because this is the one who's, that specifically came from him, and so, therefore, the power and the authority of the sacraments are through him and him alone. They are preached. They must be communicated for the understanding and for the hearing of God's people, and they're meant to be shown. They're meant to be applied. They're meant to be done before the eyes of all men and women. Those who have eyes to see will see. Those who have ears to hear will hear. So this is a testimony as well. But it is a testimony of God's promises. If we get nothing else, if, if you don't remember anything from before, okay, or anything after this, remember that. Always remember that. We are saved by God's promises and God's promise. That's why I've tried to emphasize that first promise after the fall of the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of iniquity, crush the head of sin. And he has come. And he is one. He reigns now. He reigns now. Remember, Christ is king. So, when we, when new believers are baptized, we must glory in such a sacrament as this. When believers come together as an assembly and to take of the Lord's Supper, of his body, which is broken for us, and of his blood, which is poured out for us, for the remission of sins, we must weep with joy. We don't see transubstantiation, we don't have to make the bread literally the body, and we don't have to make the wine literally the blood. This is a, this is a covenant given over by uh, the righteousness and the authority of Jesus Christ himself. What a wonderful, gracious gift. Let us not consider the sacraments as something the church has given. She has not. Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, gave these sacraments. 
to point to himself his promises, the promise of God the Father to send and to give him God the Son who has accomplished all these and God the Holy Spirit who now indwells his people who causes the heart to believe with all of its, with all of its power with all of its being that is only done by the Holy Spirit we are utterly incapable to believe with all of our hearts that is a gift you have no power to gain these eyes to see and to gain these ears to hear it is a gift according to his promises let us when we consider the sacraments be left in awe and thanksgiving gratefulness absolute adoration and reverence to God always seeing within these sacraments and within our daily pilgrimage his promises I was having a conversation with a lovely person the other day and we were talking about how they didn't really think about they didn't want to take for granted that they're you know going to heaven when you know they die and so forth now that seems humble it's not it's rather arrogant because according to his promise if you truly believe with all of your heart and if you really have been given eyes to see and ears to hear and you truly love him and you truly seek his testimony He's promised you are his, and that is a wonderful sign of that redemption, of the true redemption. And so, according to his promise, we will be with him forever in glory. Now, we live this life, we walk this pilgrimage, okay? But we, there's nothing wrong with looking forward and considering what glory will be like, with truly, with truly, the, the immediate presence truly being quorum Deo, before the face of God, truly, manifestly, just invisible now. But we see with the eyes of our hearts and our minds and our souls. We hear with the ears of our hearts and our minds and our souls. We hear his testimony. When you seek him through his word, when you follow him through his word, because you have a desire to do this, the ears of faith, hear his testimony the eyes of faith follow him according to his word because of his promises abraham believed and it was imputed righteousness the same promise holds true for all who are of his seed who all who are of jesus christ are imputed this righteousness based on faith the faith that he has given because he has baptized us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Praise be to God and to God alone. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant grace, your infinite mercy, which has no end. You've sought your people out, and you've saved us. Let us rejoice in the fulfillment of your promises. Let us always rest assured that you are not only able to promise, 
are far more than able to perform your promises. And so, Father, in faith, we ask, just as our father Abraham, that you impute the righteousness of Christ upon us. And when you see us, you see him, you see him, you see us. We are inseparably related, now and forever, according to your promises. Let us rejoice that we are yours for all of eternity. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.